0: Hey, we've been going through this uh, mini-series, three-parter, it's called A Stable Family Christmas, and we say that somewhat tongue-in-cheek, because we know that a family, as long as it's comprised of human beings, is anything but stable. Our families are messy, they're sinful, they're broken, they're complicated, they're chaotic, they're crazy. And if there's any time of the year that brings that out, it's the holiday season, am I right? Amen. Somebody said, "All right, marriage marriage counseling. Where do we? Who said that? All right, there we go." Um, And what? One of the things we wanted to do was we said, "This Christmas season, we want to we want to really stress to to keep the the Christ, the Lord, in the middle of our Christmas day, especially this year. We're not having a Christmas Eve service on Sunday. Um, We're we're having. I'm sorry, that would because that wouldn't make sense. It's Christmas Day. Uh, Christmas Eve service we are having 6:30 on Saturday night, but no Christmas Day service." No Sunday service, and so we we were showing um, some videos on on kind of some of the families in, in our in our church, our church family. And two weeks ago, we looked at the Martins and some of their morning routine and what it looks like as they celebrated Advent together, reading in scriptures, kind of from a more of a teenager uh, family. Perspective, And then last week, we looked at the Dixon family, uh, led by Cowboy Drew, and, and looking at uh, what it would look like with younger kids doing Advent and, and, and devotions together. Uh, this week, our aim was to show one of our home groups, the Clinton home group. Uh, they were very accommodating. Uh, they were willing to take video of their home group and willing to put it up on the screen for their own embarrassment, for our own amusement, I mean encouragement, um, unfortunately, yesterday uh, we don't know what happened. Uh, the technology did not work out. The Files were corrupted, and every time we tried to upload the videos and make them into a presentation, it was crashing. It was 11 o'clock at night. Uh, I needed to sleep, and so we just kind of pulled the proverbial plug on that. So I apologize to Alan's home group. Uh, They put a lot of hard work into it. I appreciate them putting them out there for us, Uh, but maybe that was, I mean, we know God's sovereign. So maybe Alan was heretical in his teaching, and it was just better for the rest of us to not George, who's in his home group, is clapping, so I don't know. <laughs> Learning a lot this morning. Um, but we, we do, you know, we're going through this, this series, and we also call it a stable family Christmas because we're looking at that original family unit in that stable that we know so well from nativity scenes being put up across the nation this week. It was three weeks ago, two weeks ago, we looked at Joseph, the father of God. Last week, we looked at Mary, the mother of God, and, and this week, we want to look at Jesus, the Son of God, as he takes center stage in this story. And we want to look at Jesus this morning, and we're going to look at the John chapter 1, uh, the first 17 verses there, or some of those verses within that passage, and we're going to be in the ESV. I will have the verses on the screen, as always, if you're new here, welcome to follow along in your translation, it's just inferior to mine. Um, sorry. Uh, We want to talk about the Word made flesh. If you go to John chapter 1, verse 14, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And And I believe right here, this verse, this is the meaning of Christmas. God becoming man, the Word becoming flesh, Jesus pitching a temporary human flesh tent among us, that's the meaning of Christmas. That sums up everything that we're doing, not the commercialism, it's all about Jesus becoming a man and, and what that meant for us. Uh, this week in our home group on Monday night, um, we were watching a video. Some mega church had put a Christmas Eve service together, and they were singing the song, Oh Holy Night. And that's my favorite Christmas song. It's powerful both melodically and lyrically. And I'm listening to that, and I'm engaged, and I'm feeling it. And the soloist was doing excellent. And then in the midst of that... This little baby in our home group had the audacity to interrupt. And the baby was a male right over there. That's the culprit. And that little, don't let that little bow fool you. She's evil, right? So she starts crying, and I'm thinking, listen, baby. I'm trying to listen to this song, right? And then all of a sudden, I was like, somebody needs to sh- pacify her. I almost said shut her up. That would not be nice, right? And all of a sudden, it hit me. As I'm listening to this song, singing about our God becoming a, a baby, and here's, here's Amalie's cry, giving the voice of the main character, and, and, it, and it hit me all of a sudden, I was thinking, man, think of, I mean, think about how helpless Amalie is right now. She, she can't mow the lawn, she, she can't pay bills, She can't even sit up straight right now, right? She's useless for society, right? And and, and she's utterly dependent on, on Jesse and Austin for everything. And I thought about the way that God humbled himself to come to this earth dependent on his own creation, the very creation that 33 years later would kill this baby. And if that's not evidence that our God loves us, that our God would go to any length necessary to reunite us with himself, then there's nothing. And and here's my aim this morning. If you're in this room, which you all are, um, you fall into two categories. There are those who are in the family of God and there are those who are not. And listen, in, in a in a group this size, there are both in, in both categories here. I would put money on that. And and listen, if you're if you're not if you're not in the family of God, my goal is to through the power of the Holy Spirit, using his word, not my eloquence, is to show you Jesus in a way that you might receive him as your Lord, as your savior, and as your God. That, the, that you might see Jesus for who he really is and receive him. And if you are in this room today, and you are a part of the family of God, th- then my aim is that you might, by the end of this message, treasure him more. That you might delight in him more vibrantly. That, that you might follow him more truly. That you might raise his name up more magnificently. More than you ever have before. That, that today, in this building, God would do something supernatural. Supernatural. And that the word made flesh, that Jesus, who came to this earth as a baby, would be lifted high. Because listen, when Jesus is magnified, when Jesus is made much of, two things happen. We are fully satisfied. We will never be more satisfied than when we are fully amazed and in love with the person of Jesus. And, and more importantly, God is most glorified. God is never more glorified than when his son is magnified and we are satisfied in his son. So we get 100% satisfaction and God gets 100% glorification. So that's my modest aim this morning. should be easy. I want to give some outline shout out to John Piper who really helped me through some of his messages, kind of piece some of this together, credit where credit's due. So we're going to look at five things this morning in John chapter 1. We're going to look at the word made flesh the fact that he is Jesus Christ, that's his name. Number two, he is God, and how important that is to the gospel message. Number three, that he is the word, I referred to in John 1, that he is the creator. And finally, that he is light and life to this world. Get some strong feedback right here. Is that is Ian? Where's Ian? Or John? I don't know if that's healthy. I don't want to die. Um, so first of all, the, the word made flesh is Jesus Christ. So, so we look here in John 17, it says, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So 16 verses in, Jesus is only, thanks Johnny, he is only referred to as the Word. And it's kind of this mysterious, like, who is this? But then here in verse 17, he names him. The Word has a name, and his name is Jesus Christ. So looking at both of those words that comprise this name, the first word is Jesus. We remember two weeks ago, we said that Joseph was told to give Jesus the name to Jesus. And he did. And, and the word means, in Hebrew, it's Yeshua, which is commonly translated into English in our English Old Testaments, Joshua. Now, at Jesus's time, Joshua was a very common name. There were Joshua's everywhere. So, wh- but while the name was common, the meaning was anything but common. And the meaning of the word Jesus in, in the Hebrew was Yahweh, or Jehovah, is salvation. Now, what that means... To break it down to us, when we think Jesus, we need to think Savior, we think Rescuer, and we think Deliverer. Jesus came to this earth as a man to deliver us from what? From our own sins? From Satan? From eternal separation from him? And listen, if you came into this room this morning and and, and you're feeling an emptiness inside, maybe you're, you're feeling that there is no purpose in your life, that there's no meaning in your life, Jesus is the one that rescues us from that meaninglessness, from that emptiness, and he gives us purpose. He gives us hope. He gives us rescue. And most importantly, he brings us back to God. That's what the name Jesus means. Then we look at the name Christ. Christ means in in the Greek it meant Christos, which is the word for Messiah or anointed one. Now you and I don't feel the weight of that the way that the people of Israel would. And we're going to resume our story, his story in January and we're going to start with Abraham and the the nation of Israel. And you got to understand these people, ever since Genesis 3, had a promise made to them that specifically through them as his chosen people, God was going to bring someone, they called him the longed for one, the hope for one and over the course of hundreds of years they were looking forward to this man that they prophesied they said this the government would be on his shoulders that he would come to this earth deliver Israel from their enemies and and set up a throne that would never end and and this is the one that they're waiting for that they're longing for the anointed one the Messiah Christ now that word just in general when it was just used Um, in the general sense God would with the priests he would anoint them he would Christ them for certain duties to, to sacrifice to make offerings to do things around the temple but Jesus was anointed for something that no one else ever has been he was chosen for anointed for being the payment of all of the sins that all of the people have ever committed that's the messiah So Jesus Christ is the one that God chose before the creation of the world, before time had even began, to save man and to reconcile him to his Father. That's the Jesus Christ. Number two, the Word made flesh is God. Look at verse number one. We go back to verse one, beginning of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now it's important to note here. It says that he is both with God and he was God. Now, if there are people outside of Christianity who say you can't have your cake and eat it too. That God, you can't be somebody can't be with God and be God, that's insane, right? Like I can't be Justin and be with Justin at the same time. That's crazy. Right? So I got some specialists that I'd love for you to come see. We which way is it? But but this is the problem. That's our tiny human brains trying to comprehend who God is. And it doesn't work. That's why the Jehovah's Witnesses, they change it to, well, the word was a God. They can live there because, yeah, he's a God, he's deity, but he's not the God. And so a God can be with another God, that's no problem. But see, we believe in this thing called the Trinity. And the Trinity is three persons, that God is three persons, but he is one. And in that relationship, God can be the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And he can be with himself, and yet he is himself. It's something that just, like, we can't, we can never comprehend that with our little tiny brains. But here's the question Why is it so essential for him to be God? Why does it matter that if the word was God and not a God, not like God, not with God? He was God. Well, this is the best way I know how to explain it. Uh, we, we know the disciple Thomas who claimed, my Lord and my God. Doubting, doubting Thomas is claiming Jesus to be God, then we know he's God, right? So, listen, God is eternal. What that means is that everything that he is, he is eternally. God has no beginning, and he has no end. Everything about God, that's why we say he's all-powerful. There's no limit to his power. He's everywhere. He's all-knowing. Everything that God is, he is eternally. So God is holy. He has always been holy. He will always be holy. But, but here's the issue. Whenever we sin against that God... It is an eternal sin. So if you and I, if I was to commit one sin, that sin would be offensive to God for as long as he is holy, and that's forever. And so because of that, we know the wages of sin is death. And and because that that sin is eternally offensive, my payment, that death payment, must also be eternal. So again, what that means is even if I sinned one time, we all know we've sinned much more than once, but if I was to sin one time, then I would have to make an eternal payment to God, meaning I would have to be separated from him forever. So if I want to pay for my sins, that's how I do it. I'm separate from God forever, and even then it doesn't fully satisfy it. When Jesus became a man, he came to this earth. If Jesus was only a man and he wasn't God, we'd have a problem. Because man is finite. What that means is the opposite of infinite is eternal, right? Finite means it's limited. Man has a beginning. Man can't be everywhere at the same time. Man doesn't know everything. Man's not all-powerful. So so if man's going to make this payment, it's got to be an eternal payment. But listen, because Jesus was God, because God is eternal, now he had to become man. That's why the Word was made flesh. Because if he's not a man, he can't die. And the payment of sin is death. He became a man so he could die, but he, because he was God, eternal God could make a one-time payment, and that's exactly what he did on the cross. Look at Hebrews. Under the old covenant, the priest stands and ministers before the altar day after day after day after day after day, that's the message version, offering the same sacrifices again and again and again and again, which can never take away sins. Why? Why? Because it's finite. Because it's not perfect. It's a, it's a picture. With the, that lamb is not perfect. That priest is not perfect. Therefore, that, that lamb cannot take away the sins of the world. But, what do we say? There's always a beautiful but in scriptures. But, our high priest, Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh, offered himself to God as a what? As a single sacrifice for sins, good for how long? For all time. Then he sat down in the place of honor at God's right hand. When he sits down, that means I'm done. Mic drop. I've paid the price. Jesus is eternal. And because the word was God, his one offering on the cross was good to pay for every sin that you have ever committed, that you ever will commit, that I've ever committed, that I ever will commit, that all of us in this world, every sin for every man, for every woman, for all time, praise Jesus. He is God. Number three, the word made flesh is the word. Now notice here, first three times here in verse one, Jesus, right out of the gates, is identified as the Word. So we have to ask the question, why did God choose the Word? Why did He choose the Word? And I like the way John Piper posed the question, what else would be an option? If not the Word, what? So let's let's kind of workshop a couple other things. What if He had said, not the Word, but in the beginning was the deed? And the deed was with God, and the deed was God. Now, don't we say actions are better than words? Isn't God a God of action? Isn't it better to do than just say? But here's the issue with actions. Actions are ambiguous. And here's what I mean by that. Let's say you came in late to church today, purely hypothetical. 65% of our congregation. (laughs) It's all right, I don't take it personally. So you come in late today, and I go, I could make some assumptions, but I don't know why you came in late today, right? Maybe you're lazy. Maybe you slept in. Maybe you forgot what time church started. Maybe you're driving on K Beach and you saw someone with a flat tire or someone flipped upside down and you stopped to be a good Samaritan. I don't know. And until you tell me with your words why you came in late, I I don't know. I I can't judge your deed based on just your deed itself. And here's the, the deal. God is a clear communicator and he wants us to know him And how to have a relationship with him. And actions alone can't communicate that. The words must follow. So what about the thought? What if God was the thought? In the beginning was the thought, and the thought was with God, and the thought was God. Well, here's the problem with a thought. The thought stays in your head. So if I walk up to Scott and go, Hmm. Hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. And Scott's looking at me like, what in the world are you doing? Oh, I was just thinking some really nice thoughts about you, right? It's just really, really positive thoughts. Like you would not believe the nice thoughts I was having about you. Until I actually speak those words, that does no benefit to Scott, to just, the fact that I'm thinking those words. Until I, in love, communicate with Scott how I feel about him, what I think about him, how I appreciate him, it means nothing to Scott. And here's the thing about the word. The word goes out of your head and it communicates to someone else. And God is a God of love and he communicates that love with us, thank the Lord. He communicates it with himself and the Godhead, the Father and the Son and the Spirit are speaking words to one another and then that Godhead speaks words to us. Imagine if we were on this planet with nothing but creation to figure out that Jesus died on the cross to save our sins, it wouldn't happen. Faith comes by hearing, hearing comes from the word what about the feeling in the beginning was the feeling and the feeling was with God and the feeling was God just like a deed the feeling's ambiguous if I came up and said why are you crying I have no idea maybe you're happy maybe you're sad maybe you cut an onion I have no idea why you're crying why are you happy you're clicking your heels well why are you happy maybe you just got a million dollars and you're a super greedy person right Maybe you gave away a million dollars and God loves a cheerful giver. I'm sure that's why you're happy. Emotions need to be explained. And then you know how to react. Without words, you got nothing. So once again, the word is God clearly, unambiguously telling us everything we need to know to have a relationship with him through Jesus. Praise God for the word. Number four, the word made flesh is creator. Verse three, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. Now listen, it says here that the word who is Jesus, as we've identified, created all things. I think there's two things here that are underlined through this verse. First of all, that Jesus is God. Once again, we think of creator, who do we think of? We think of God. Well, here he's showing us that God, the one who created all things, is Jesus. And when you first read this verse, it kind of looks redundant, doesn't it? All things were made through him, okay, so he created everything, and without him was not anything made that was made. Some of you have been reading through the the Own It 365. It seems like a lot of times in scripture there's this unnecessary repetition. We just read that. Why are you saying it again? So is he just being redundant? I don't think he is. In the second second, uh, part of the verse, look at what he says. Without him, without Jesus, was not anything made that was made. Here's what I think he's clarifying. It would be one thing to say God made, made Jesus, and then Jesus made everything else. But here's what we've just done. We've made Jesus less than God because God created him, and he's a finite being, and the gospel's nullified. But here it's saying there was nothing that was ever made that wasn't made by Jesus. So Jesus couldn't have been created by God or else that was something made that he didn't make. I think John's underlining, no, Jesus wasn't created. He's God. He's been here since the beginning and he will always be. I think the second thing that it underlines is the shock that the creation rejected the creator. Jesus formed us He knit us together in our mother's womb. He made us exactly who he wanted us to be. He gave us our personalities. He gave us our sense of humor. He gave us our skills. He gave us our purpose. He gave us our life. And when that creator makes us, and then we turn around and we spit in that Savior's face, and we nail him to the tree. You think about the, the potter. The potter makes the pot, carefully crafts it just as he wanted And then imagine that pot turning back and looking at that potter and saying, I don't need you. I don't want you in my life. This is the gravity of sin that we have rejected the very one who made us. Last one, the word made flesh is light and life. Verse four, in him, in the word, in Jesus Christ was life. And the life was the light of men. Now we know, and it just said in verse three that he created everything. So again, is this redundant? Is it we, just, we know that he gave everything life. He created the world. He created the sun. He created our flesh and bones. So why does he say that again here? Well, I want to underline a part of this verse. He said, the life was the light. I don't think, I think in verse 3, he's talking about physical things. I think here in verse 4, he's talking about spiritual life and spiritual light. I think John is addressing our two most basic needs as humans. You see, when, because we're sinners... We're born into this world apart from God. We are born dead, which is an oxymoron, and we're born blind. We're born dead and we're born blind. We have no life inside of us because we're not connected to God, and we cannot see clearly because we have no light when we're walking in darkness and sin. Apart from Jesus, we're dead and blind, but when Jesus came to this earth, that verse says he came to give us light and life. He says that again in John. For just as the Father gives life to those he raises from the dead. That's me and you before we know Jesus. We're dead. We can't do anything. And he offers us life. He gives us life. John 3:3. I tell you the truth. Unless you are born again, given new life, you cannot see the kingdom of God, until God steps down and supernaturally gives me new life, I can see nothing for as it really is. Dead people can't see. So you ask the question, and it begs the question, see what? When unbelievers are not running into walls, tripping over furniture, they can see faces, they can see mountains. What is it that the unbeliever can't see? Without the life and without the light, you and I can never see Jesus for who he really is. He says, the word made flesh dwelt among us, and this is how he finishes the verse. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. If we're going to be able to see Jesus... For the beauty that he really is, to see him in all of his grace and in all of his truth and in all of his glory, it must be he who gives sight to the blind. When Jesus was in the garden, the, one of the last things he prays before he is led to the slaughter, he prays to God and look at this beautiful prayer. He says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to what? Reconcile them to what? To see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. See, he's praying to save them, not just that we be saved from our sins, but to be saved so we can be the one thing that will satisfy our soul, that we will find meaning in, that we will find fulfillment in, that we will find purpose in, and that is to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus. And I think if we saw him as he really was, saw him as he really is, there be nothing in our hearts but worship 24 hours a day, seven days a week. C.S. Lewis, he said this, he said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. And I love that. The sun, we can, we can see the sun because of its light, but also because of the sunlight, I can see everything else on this earth, and without that light I wouldn't be able to see anything. And I think what he's saying is that when Jesus gives us sight, when he gives us life and then light, it's not just that we can see Jesus, but it's that through Jesus, we now see everything else in our life as it really is. That now I can see my, my spouse through the lens of Jesus and see them as they really are. I can see the relationships. I, I, can, I can see money. I can see purpose. I can see the mountains. I, everything that I look at now, I look through the lens of Jesus and I see it as it really is. So we have two responses this morning. We've heard this. We've we've heard from God explaining who his his one and only son is. Now we have two options. The first one is to say, I do not know him and I do not receive him. And we see this in in John as an option. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. So here comes this light. Now here's the, the reaction of the people. He was in the world and the world was made through him, the creator. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Think about that for a second. Hundreds and hundreds of years, they're waiting for that Messiah, the longed-for-one, the hoped-for-one, and he's finally here. And his own people, his own people, not just the world, but the specific special people set apart from him. The Israelites reject him, and not just reject him, they kill him. And I plead with you this morning, don't say this. Don't look at these five things and say, I don't want to know you, and I don't receive you, and I don't welcome you. Now, you might say, especially as a believer, why would I ever say that to Jesus? Why would I ever not want to live? Why would I never want to see? All of these things are good things. Why would I ever reject that? Here's why we reject that. Because of our hearts. Jesus spoke to this in John 3. He said, God's light came into the world, but the people loved the darkness more than the light. Why? For their actions were evil. Here's what he's saying. He follows up in verse 20. All who do evil hate the light and refuse to go near it. Why? Why don't we want to go near the light? Why would we choose to be in darkness when you could have light? I never walk around in my house with the lights off if I can't see. I turn the lights on. I prefer light. So why would we choose darkness over light? He answers it at the end of verse 20. For fear, their sins will be exposed. Here's what he's saying. The reason we don't step into the light, the reason we don't accept, receive Jesus, is because we don't want to be found out. We don't want our sins to be exposed. We don't want God, we don't want people to know that underneath all of our smiles, underneath all of our good deeds, there's nothing but a heart of sin of pride, of fear. We don't want that out of the bag. So we hide and we reject Jesus. Because Jesus is the Savior. And look, the word Savior, it means one that saves from danger or destruction, one that makes safe. And until we admit, until we admit that we're in danger, until we admit that that we're headed toward destruction, until we admit that we need safety, We will never cry out for our Savior. If I'm lying on the beach, soaking up the rays, getting my bronze on, you know, just life is good. And all of a sudden this lifeguard jumps off the lifeguard thing and he comes over to me and he grabs me and he starts giving me the Heimlich. I'm going, get off of me. What are you doing? I don't need rescued. But if I go out to swim in that huge ocean and the undertow grabs me and I'm drowning and I can't get back up to the surface, I am not going to reject that lifeguard. And they say, and I don't know if it's true or not, I'm not a lifeguard, but they say if you're flailing, if you're still trying to struggle and on your own trying to get to the surface, the lifeguard can't help you because if you come close, you're just taking them down with you. They say you actually have to wait until the person stops struggling, stops trying on their own, and then they can be rescued. So step one, we have to admit that we're not lying on the beach. This world wants to convince us that everything's good, that, that we're comfortable, that life's okay. We have to admit that we're not, everything is not okay, that we're in the beach, we're, we're in the water, we're in over our heads and we need rescue. And Number two, got to quit struggling. And we got to quit trying to save ourselves. And it's only when we let go that God can finally come in and let Jesus do the work for us that we could never do. that brings us to our other option. It's to say, I know him and I receive him. Look at verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. He says, if we do receive him, if we say, I want to know Jesus, I need him. I'm helpless to save myself. And we receive Jesus as our savior. You know what he says we get? We get to call the creator God, the holy one who lives in unapproachable light. We get to call him daddy. We get to call Jesus the word made flesh, brother. We get a whole new family with brothers and sisters and crazy uncles like Blair, right? (laughs) Jesus is our great example. He humbled himself to become a baby. And in the same way, we're called to humble ourselves to receive that baby as our king, as our God, to admit that we're broken, that we're helpless, that we're sinful, and we need someone outside of ourselves to rescue us. So if you're in this room this morning and you're not a part of the family of God, I pray that you would receive him. And if you are in the family of God, like me, on a daily basis, we, res- we struggle to receive him as our king because of our pride, because we don't want to admit that we're broken. We don't want to admit we need something outside of ourselves. We think we can fix it. We think we can be the gods of our own universes. Listen, we make crummy, crummy gods. We will only find delight when we admit that we need him. And in the midst of that, we will find Jesus as satisfying and God will be glorified as he should be. Let's pray. Father, my simple prayer is this. If there's anyone in this room that does not know you through Jesus, has not received him as king, received him as Lord, received him as God, received him as savior, that you would do a work in their heart that's beyond anything that I can say, beyond any coercion from anyone else in this world, beyond their own ability to save themselves, God, that you would do a supernatural work and that today you would add to the family of God and new brothers and sisters would be welcomed in. And God, there are many in this room today who need to quit trying to please you on their own, who need to quit trying to get to the surface by their own arms and to let go and allow Jesus to be their Savior for Jesus to be their life, for Jesus to be their light, to be their all in all. Your son, the word, he is God, he is Jesus Christ, our savior, the anointed one, he is our creator, he is the spoken word to communicate it to us, everything we need to know to know you. He is our light in our life, may we only find satisfaction in him and glorify you. It's in your son's precious name that we pray, amen.